But this morning we're in John's Gospel, chapter 3. Um, John's Gospel, chapter 3. Today is at New Hope Chapel. Once a month we partake in communion together. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. We'll talk about that in a moment, or at the end, actually. Um, but I wanted to give a little bit of history about this because there's a connection here with what our text is. But in John's Gospel, chapter 3, uh, before we get to our text, I want to share with you some things that go on there. A lot of us are familiar with what happens in John, chapter 3. And we know that Jesus has been around. He's been baptized. His ministry takes off. Um, in fact, we sang about it. Um, the idea of singing about Jesus, precious Lamb of God. The idea that John the Baptist was baptizing uh, for the remission of sins. He's baptizing people. And then Jesus comes along and John the Baptist says, wait, whoa, whoa. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he says, I can't even unbuckle his sandals. I'm not worthy. This is the Lamb of God. And the reason that he calls him Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is because as it had been for hundreds and hundreds of years, you had to have the sacrificial lambs, right, to take away the sins of the people, a pure, spotless one. And Jesus certainly was that, and that's why he said that. He recognized them as the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that came as the servant who would be sacrificed. And it was a powerful picture there. But in John chapter 3, um, after all this happens, Jesus begins his ministry teaching and preaching the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus, who was a religious leader and teacher, had come to Jesus. And we're familiar with the story, if, if you've been a Christian and if you know the Bible a little bit, that Jesus is approached by him, and it's because Nicodemus wants to find out more what the scoop is on this guy named Jesus. And he was a little bit, I mean, we, we, we can kind of infer from the scripture, he might have been a little bit, you know, he didn't want to do it with his other compadres knowing, you know, the partners in crime, I'll call them, because some of the Pharisees, there were good ones, by the way, I don't want to make them all sound all that bad but a lot of them were man they were they were criminal in the sense that they were adding to the truth of what scripture was unnecessarily and it burdened people and it made life difficult and you're always wondering if you were good enough and it just kept compounding and adding up and they they kept doing this putting this burden on people by adding laws to the law of God that was already good and of itself right So Nicodemus comes at night, and he wants to know who Jesus is, what he's up to, and Jesus tells him this whole spiel about being born again. And he he tells about being born again, and it's it's a spiritual birth, it's not a physical one, and Nicodemus is even confused, he says, like, you mean like a man going back into his mom's womb? Like, what's that all about? He wasn't computing with them that he was talking about a spiritual rebirth, not a physical one. And he's having this conversation and he likens it to the wind and the Holy Spirit and how he works in regenerating or making us new creations or or making us born again. He likens it to the wind that's blowing. He says, it's just like the wind. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going to go. And But yet it does its deal, right? You can't see it, but you can see the leaves moving. You don't. You can't see it, but you feel the breeze on your face, man, at the beach in the summer. It's so great. You're laying there in the sand. You're like roasting and you just, you just, just sit up. And you already feel the breeze, right? Then you get up and go by the water, and it's like you feel the effects. And not only that, you see what the wind does. You go to the beach, another analogy, and you see what the wind does. Before long, after a storm, the beach is transformed. The dunes and the sand. And it's like, where'd the beach go? Because it all got eroded with the wind causing the waves to come, the wind blowing sand, all the grains of sand, right? It, it does change. And, he, and, and Jesus shares that with him. It's like the Holy Spirit. It's like the wind. You don't know. You don't understand where it comes from or where it's going to go, but that's how he works. It's, it's mysterious, if I could put it that way, yet it's real and supernatural. Amen. It's supernatural, the new birth. Being born again, again, is not a result 
of personal efforts. Man, those things wear you out. But being born again involves a personal relationship with God. Where you connect to God because of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Jesus teaches that this relationship is, 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 is a result of it's a spiritual, it's a sovereign, and it's supernatural, this birth. It, it, it's spiritual because it's not physical, and Nicodemus was confused by that. It's sovereign because no one can change your heart or give you a new heart. Man, I cannot change Cohen's heart. Well, neither can you for that fact. You can't change Diana's heart. You thought you were going to get away with it, right? You're laughing. You, you can't change my you can't change my heart. We say things like, oh, you had to change your heart. I persuaded. I convinced. We understand what we mean by that. But to give you a whole new nature, become a whole new person, that is a sovereign, powerful, only the creator of the universe could do something like that who is also your redeemer. And it's supernatural because, man, it is beyond anything that can, that can transpire naturally for that to happen. It can't be a natural thing in any way, shape, or form. It's spiritual. All right? So after Jesus likens the nature and the activity of the wind to the Holy Spirit, verse 9, Nicodemus still doesn't get it. And he says, how can this be? As I mentioned earlier. And Jesus responds, well, my wife doesn't really do this, but I know in her head she responds this way, so I'll take the liberty. I'm getting, I'm, 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 I'm dangerous territory here, but <laughs> how can this be, Nicodemus says. And now, now, now the reason, the thing about this, the parallel is, is because Nicodemus has been watching Jesus for a little while, not like long, but a little while, but more importantly, Nicodemus is fully aware of what the law is and what the scriptures are. He's very well versed and he knows it. Okay, so for him to say, how can this possibly, he's not getting it. And Jesus responds, like my wife does, after she makes a statement to me, and then I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, and then she repeats it in a different way to clarify, and I still don't get it, or maybe I don't want to accept what she said. And And she's probably thinking, you're my husband, we've been married for 19 years, how can you not understand And you know what? That's kind of how Jesus' response is. I mean, not really, but sort of. Like, don't you know the law? Haven't you studied this all your life and you're familiar with truth? I'm truth and I'm teaching it. I'm passing it on. How can you not grasp and understand spiritual things? And Jesus said to him in verse 10 in chapter 3 of John's Gospel, and here's our text this morning, you are Israel's teacher. What a huge statement. You're a teacher of the, spiritually of the people of Israel, the Jewish people. And he says here, you do not, and you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly or spiritual things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven. And Jesus is talking about himself and he says, the Son of Man. Verse 14 and 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. You know, we're so familiar with John 3.16. I could probably ask almost anyone here and you'll tell me what it says. Right? Roughly, if not exactly. But we forget what comes before this because it's really saying the same thing. But yet it's making a connection so that it makes sense and there's application that's related to history and it's a fulfillment of that history that comes through Jesus Christ and the redemption that he brings and that only he brings. 
Amazing connection. Jesus concludes his conversation with Nicodemus by explaining that the new birth comes only through a Savior. Yes, it's spiritual, it's sovereign, it's supernatural, but it only comes through a Savior. There's no other way you can be born again except through Jesus Christ. Amen. No other way. And Jesus wants to make that point. Yeah, it's like the wind. The Spirit's moving. And the thing that happens inside your life, and it's spiritual, and it's hard to explain, and, and you, but you know it's real. You see its effect, and, you, and, and you're aware. But, but it has to come through somebody who died for you. Let's jump to verse 14, where Jesus goes back into history and to an event in the Old Testament where Nicodemus understood very well what Jesus was talking about. Again, he was an expert in the Old Testament. So Jesus goes back to Numbers 21 in the Old Testament. Numbers 21. And there, there's an account in the history of Israel. And this is the connection. You'll see the connection to communion in a little bit. This is the connection that Jesus is making with Nicodemus and relating to him. Here's your own history, dude. Do you know your people, they were wandering in the desert. I delivered them from Pharaoh. Then they were wandering in the desert on the way to the promised land. And all they did is whine and complain the whole time. I mean, we don't see that conversation in John's gospel, but that's, Nicodemus knows that. They're, they're, they're going through, they're, and they're wandering in the desert, and then they're hungry, they're saying, oh, if we could just go back to, to, to Egypt. Like, you mean be slaves again? Like, it's better there because, you know, at least we had beds that were, even if it was rough straw, we had beds. But here, we're in the wilderness, and it's dry and hot, and we're trying to make beds every night, and it's terrible. And it's hot, and there's no food. And then eventually, when they're, they're hungry, God took care of his own people, and he sends manna. Now, I don't know exactly what manna is, and they debate what that is, but some kind of a bread-like thing that came from heaven, right? But God provides manna. It, it's there in the, in, the, in the scriptures, in Exodus, you'll read it. And so God provides manna. And the amazing thing about the manna is that it was enough to sustain them. It, now, I don't want to, I have to believe this. Because all they had was manna, and then eventually they had quail. They had some meat, right? God gave them as well. But the manna was so nutritious that they can keep going for 40 years. That's all they ate, and a little bit of... So it had everything. It was like your power bar on steroids. <laughs> I'm serious. Because that's all they had. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be funny. This is what they ate and God provided. God knows how to sustain you. And you know what? This is the problem with today. And I started being a tangent. I can't help but go there. That they started complaining. You know, what you know why they complained? This is what I believe. I really believe this. It wasn't about because of what they had in Egypt. But they were complaining because they didn't have variety. It's the same thing. But wait a minute. But you have all the energy you need. You have all the nutrition you need. You have all the strength you need. You keep going. I'm going to get you there. You're, you're doing some bad decisions. And you're making bad choices. So you're wandering now. But I have a promise. And Moses is with you. I'm providing man and quail. But it's the same thing every day, God. <laughs> but it's the same thing every day, God. It's just your Bible. Do I got to read it? Uh, yeah. But, it's, but, it's, but it gets boring. It's like to say, I've read that scripture before. Yeah, but you, have you gotten all the nutrition out of that scripture yet? Yeah, amen. Amen. Good word. It doesn't end. That's the, this, is, this, is, this is a manna here, the word of God. Jesus actually, is, he, he actually likens himself to being the bread from heaven. And there's a connection to the manna that God sent. And Jesus came from heaven himself. 
And he's walking among his people and there's sustenance and there's nutrition, everything they need. And so Nicodemus understands this and they want variety. Now that sounds a lot like a lot of what goes on today. People get so bored with going to a church where all they hear is the pure gospel all the time. They want to hear something that's palatable, variety. They want to see different styles. They want to see someone jumping. They want to see a dramatic production with lights and smoke. And I'm not against that, by the way, necessarily. But they want variety. Give us the latest and the trendiest thing. I want something different. That's what I want. And Jesus says, listen, go and feed on my word. That's all you need. Now, listen, I'm not here to be... Am I boring? All right, so, all right. So, I hope I'm not. Listen, because I don't want to just be manna every day, right? No, but listen, we, we have variety. You know, there, listen, there's amazing variety right here. I mean, look, there's Julie, for crying out loud, and Denise, and, and, and Jean. I mean, look at the variety. And there's Jack over there. There's all kinds of variety in here. Ages, experiences, and backgrounds, and ethnicity. I mean, it's an amazing thing, and we're together. And so there should be joy in that. It's not that boring, to be a Christian. It's exciting because God keeps giving you everything you need every single day. But I want to go back to Egypt because they didn't have quail. They had chickens. I want chickens. And we laugh because we know we're like that. It, it, was, it was a sin of complaining about the fact that you, you didn't have variety. But you had everything you need. We want something else. Sounds like our kids, doesn't it? Anyway, the people were getting tired, and so they don't like... You know, and think about this. They're not liking the fact that they're getting manna and quail every day, but God's providing something for them that they don't even have to work for. Oh, sounds like another parallel. Well, Jesus comes from heaven. He's the bread of heaven, and you don't even have to work for it, and he gives of himself freely for you to give you eternal life for free. Well... He paid the price. But you believe. There's a parallel there. So they get complaining. And, and, and here's what happens in, in, in Numbers 21. I spent a little time because it's the backdrop. In Numbers 21, they get complaining. And God sends snakes, venomous snakes, into the Israelite community. That's not fair. God's so mean. Why would he do that? Why would God's people complain? This is the eighth recording in the book of Numbers where all they're doing is whining, complaining, and being little brats. God's patience, as patient as he is, he's like, listen, I, just like our children, I've got to teach you a lesson. You, I'm going to remind you that your reliance is on me, and I've done so much for you, and it's just, just a lesson here. I'm not going to get into all the, uh, and get philosophical and how, why God disciplines and how he disciplines, but he does because he loves them. There is people, and he loves you. And God brings this judgment because of their horrible attitude. They certainly didn't have the attitude of gratitude we heard about last week. So God sends these fiery serpents or these venomous serpents. And it's a very tragic story because people die. They die. And so the people eventually are freaking out. And, they, and now they go to Moses, the one who they were just sitting against, complaining against, and God, by the way. And they say, Moses, please pray to God to have mercy on us so that snakes go away. And so Moses prays. But God does not make the snakes go away. Hmm, sounds like another parallel. Sounds like the world that we live in. There's sin all around us. It's not going to go away. And I'm, this is not because I'm you know, going to be a downer here and oh, I'm negative and I'm, oh. It's not, it's not going away until Jesus comes. 
There's a lot of sin around us. The effects of sin have been here since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And, and we see it all around us. There's wickedness, there's evil, there's horrible things that go on that we, we just shake our head, of course, but then we realize that even with things, little things I do, like lying and being ungrateful and so on and so forth, we're, we're sinning as well. But we tend to say, that's a huge one, that's a small one. Listen, God's offended. And the sin has a consequence, and it has ripple effects, and it hurts people, and it hurts us, and it, it, and, and it affects God, our relationship with God, for sure. So, but, but God says, you know, Moses, I'm not getting rid of the snakes. If I wanted to, I could just go like this, and they could all be gone. But instead, he tells Moses to make a bronze snake and to put it on a pole so that everybody and anyone who looked at that snake would be healed from the snake bite. Now, that's craziness. I'm sorry. Like, because it borders on, like, this almost, like, pagan practice of, like, you know, I'm going to do something weird, and and if I do this formulaic thing, and I look to that, and I have to go through this ritual, then I'll be good, right? Listen, this is, and we're going to address that in one second. This is the challenge we have, that when God provides a remedy through a purpose or a relic or whatever it is, whatever we want to call it, sometimes we can can fall into a trap of idolizing that. And I'm going to touch on that in just a moment. God made a provision. He didn't eradicate the snakes. He made a provision for those who are bitten. Look at the bronze snake. That's it? Yeah, that's it. Just look at the bronze snake. And everyone who took God at his word and looked at the snake was healed. You can read about it in Numbers 21. Prove me wrong. It's there. Just a simple look. The person who believed and acted, was spared, and they lived. So listen, about 1,500 years after this happens in the wilderness, in Numbers 21, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. We're coming back to Nicodemus, right? And Jesus says to Nicodemus, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man, talking about himself, must be lifted up. Why? So that anyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Sounds like John 3.16, stated before John 3.16. That anyone who believes in him, Jesus' words to Nicodemus, may have eternal life. How? By looking at, that, looking at him who is, who is lifted up on that cross he's talking about. And if you have faith, you'll have eternal life. In other words, you're spared. The, the consequence of sin, is you're protected from that. It's gone. It's the antidote, Right? The Son of Man, and, and I just want to, really quickly, it'll be very quick, but I'm going to just show you three quick ways that the Son of Man, that Jesus, had to be lifted up, and they're really important for us today. The first one, obviously, as I just mentioned, is that he had to be lifted up on the cross. And he said so himself, that just as the, Moses raised the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Same thing. Jesus was raised on the cross. And there was only one remedy for the snake bite that was killing the people in the wilderness. The bronze Snake. And here's another parallel. There's only Jesus. He's the only one that can heal and cure the bite of sin. He's the antidote to that bite. And instead of the wages of sin, which is death, Jesus gives us eternal life. He gives us eternal life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. We sang it in our first song this morning. It said, God made him who had no sin. Remember, he's that pure, spotless lamb of God. He made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Only Jesus can take the wrath of God that is, that is just 
poured out because of sin. And in that moment, all the sins of the world came upon Jesus. Your sins that happened yesterday, last week, five years ago, that you're going to commit today, the ones you're going to commit in 10 years if you're around, or 20 years, or whatever it is, and, and he died for those. They came upon him. And in that moment, the Bible records that God had turned his face from him. The obscenity, the grossness, the idea that all these sacrifices were made for the, for the forgiveness of sins. And now Jesus comes as the final sacrifice. And God's light was taken away from the light of the world because the wrath of God came upon him. All the sin of the world for you, for me, for all those who would just turn and believe in him by faith. The serpent... It was in the sight of all the people. It didn't matter if you got bit by the snake in the ankle and you're laying there and you're barely moving and, 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 and it's starting to take effect and your muscles are getting weak and your vision is getting blurred. And then Moses raises the serpent. Even if you're on the outside of the camp and 150, 200 feet away, you see on the pole, 20 feet up in the air, you see this, even a silhouette of the serpent. And if you just look, all of a sudden your vision got better and you, and you had energy. You got spared. That's all it takes. A simple look of faith. God gives you the faith, the Holy Spirit. That's how he works. He gives you that faith and you believe. And it's not about yelling and crying or going through a formula or doing some kind of ritual. It's a simple look of faith. You know what it comes down to? A simple profession. Amen. We do not discount the simple profession of salvation in Jesus Christ to be powerful and effective because all it takes is one look of faith that Jesus is your Savior Amen. and you're saved. There's lordship that comes too and obedience. And that comes as a result of faith. You can't separate them. But that salvation comes when you look to Jesus in faith to take away your sins. The serpent was to save a life and Jesus saves the soul. And it was a simple look, a simple obedience. I love what it says in Romans 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be saved. You'll gain eternal life. You'll be in that right relationship with God. The, the effects of sin, the poison that's, that was coursing through your veins that sin caused because of the bite of sin, it's gone. It's removed. And the, it's paralyzing effects and the ultimate effect of destroying you is gone because of your faith in Jesus. I believe that. Do you believe that? It's once and for all. And it's very effective. You know, bronze. The idea that the serpent was bronze is very important. In the Bible, nothing is in the Bible by accident, by the way. I don't believe, I, I, that's my belief. Numbers, colors, all kinds of different things, they have significance. And I don't want to overplay this or whatever, but, and you can get kind of crazy with numbers. You can get a little ridiculous. You've got to be careful. But, but bronze or brass is a very important metal in the Bible. And in Revelation 21, it talks about he coming down with these bronze feet and he's, he's, Jesus is coming down. And, and, but even before that, Way back before that, in Moses' time in the tabernacle, they had this portable temple, right? They had set it up, and they had this altar. Do you know what the altar was made out of, where they made sacrifices? I gave you the hint already. Brass, bronze. The laver was made out of bronze. There were other bronze fixtures. The bronze or brass signifies and symbolizes God's judgment and or testing. And here you go. You have this serpent there, and it's a picture of what would happen with Jesus. No, he wasn't made out of bronze. But it was a picture that the judgment would come on Jesus for you and for me so that you wouldn't be judged and condemned to be without God in hell forever. He took that upon himself. 
Jesus is eternal, and he is the cure perpetually for sin. The bronze serpent in the wilderness was only temporary. And so that's, that's, that's a huge difference as well, but it lasts forever and ever. Jesus was lifted up. So Jesus was lifted up. He allowed himself to be on the cross, nailed to the, to the cross, so that you and I could live, and if we look, we are saved. You know, the Bible reminds us, I mentioned I would go here, that not to be, to be careful of not worshiping any graven images, right? The second commandment is, is, it tells us that. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods. The second says, you shall make no graven images, and of course, worship them. You shouldn't have any of those. There is no other God except Jehovah, one God. One true God. There is, there's only one God. I, I can't imagine thinking there's more than one God and how they compete and how you choose which one is better. That's just confusing. There's one God. There's one true God. And the Bible says that in, in 700 years, 700 years after this happens where Moses raises this serpent on the pole, in, second, in 1 Kings chapter 18, the Bible records that King Hezekiah, ever hear King Hezekiah, some of you? King Hezekiah? Awesome, awesome guy. And here's how I know, because the Bible tells us. 1 Kings 18, verse 5 and 6. Listen to these words very carefully. We're going to be coming to an end soon. Listen very carefully. It says that King Hezekiah, he trusted, this is, this is the word of God, trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah. And these are the words of the Bible, not mine. Either before him or after him. But wait, what about King David? What about Solomon? What about... The Bible says there was no king like Hezekiah and there was never one like him before him or after him. I didn't say it. The Bible says that. Do you know why? Because it says here, right here, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. But even more, in verse 6, it says, he held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commandments the Lord had given Moses. Talk about obedience and faith. You know what Hezekiah did? If you read verse 4 in chapter 18 of Kings, he went, here's history for you, this is amazing stuff. The Bible records that he went and he took the brass serpent that Moses made. You were wondering where that went, right? All those years, what happened to that thing? He took it and he shredded it to pieces. That's what it says. You know why he did it? Because he became an idol to the people of God. The faith was not in the brass serpent, even, even at the first point, right in the beginning. The faith was in the obedience and do what Moses said, what God commanded. It wasn't that the serpent itself saved you. It was your act of faith that saved you. Because you believed what God said. Now, the question becomes naturally then this morning if you hear, do you believe what God said? That there is only one person who died for your sins. Do you believe that? I'm glad you answered. I, I want you to ask yourself here, but thank you for answering. Do you believe that? Do you believe there's only one? And, and so he got rid of this because it was pagan worship. Like any, and, and it says, I know that it became idolatrous because it lists other pagan forms of graven things that he destroyed. The Asherah poles and other things. He destroyed them because they were worshiping idols, man-made things, and they weren't worshiping God anymore. That's the danger we run into, is that we can start to worship Worship. And we become so mechanical because, well, 
There's the cross. Oh, yep, I believe that. And you're looking at that and it's like it becomes almost like the object of your faith in some weird way for some people. Or that, well, I go to church 48 times a month, so I'm good. I worship that, man. And you have more faith in your actions and in your religious activity than you do in the person behind or because of your religious activities. And so Hezekiah said, we can't have any of this. It's unrighteous. And he got rid of them. Second way, really quick. Second way that we have to, Jesus was lifted up is that after Jesus died, he was lifted up out of the grave, man. Amen. He didn't stay there. He was lifted up on the cross, and that's great. The Bible says that there's no forgiveness of sins unless you're shedding of blood. Unless someone dies, pays the price, and Jesus did that. And that's why the symbolism is of the brass serpent with the judgment of God, and Jesus is there. But then he was lifted up out of the grave. You know what that symbolizes? That symbolizes and it shows that God was pleased with what happened. And that same spirit, Paul says in Romans, that raised Jesus up is one day going to raise us up so we could be with him in eternity, forever and ever and ever. And so Jesus rises from that and in so doing, he defeats sin, death, and the devil. And Jesus lifted himself up for everyone to see. In fact, Paul records in Corinthians that he appeared to 500 and the apostles and he lists names. All these individuals that he appeared to bodily in person that he showed up and said, look, I'm alive. He even showed them in their nail scars. He said, put your hand in my side, especially since you don't believe Thomas, right? And he goes on and on. He is lifting him. He is showing, and people saw. It was evidence. He was definitely seen by those when he was ascending to heaven, right? And he left them the Great Commission and says to wait for the Holy Spirit to come so they could fulfill the Great Commission. And he, before he they saw it. It wasn't just the disciples and the apostles. It was others that were in the vicinity. They saw Jesus going up into the clouds, Jesus was lifted up out of the grave and he was lifted up into heaven. And it's an amazing thing because the Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, God exalted him to the highest place and he gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is called exaltation. That is called lifting up. You want to talk about being lifted up out of the grave and being recognized as the ruler of the universe? Man, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father because he finished his work. Amen. Praise God. I'm going to ask, Wayne, can you ask, get the kids and just get them all rounded up? The third one, that needs, it needs to be completed. This lifting up of the Son of Man needs to be clean, completed before the day comes when Jesus comes to take us to be with him. Perhaps today, this is probably the one that is, maybe it's the most important in, in some ways, for, especially for those of us who have already placed our faith and trust in Jesus. Because the Son of Man, Jesus, must now be lifted up by, by you and me. Is he being lifted up by you and me? Are others seeing that he's the way, the truth, and the life? Are others seeing that he is the final sacrifice for all of humanity's sins? Are others seeing that he is the only way to be saved? Are others seeing that? We are to lift him up before others. The way that bronze snake was lifted up, God wants us to lift up um, Jesus before men. Not be ashamed. No, we're not, we're not cocky and rude and jerky about it. That's not, that's not how it works. But that we are not ashamed that we know who Jesus is and he's our Lord and Savior. Unashamedly proclaiming the gospel like the Apostle Paul did, who said that he was not ashamed of the power of the gospel. Because the gospel, it was the power, it is the power of God for salvation for those who believe. We're not ashamed of Jesus. He wants us to tell others that upon believing in the promised 
The promise is attached to Jesus. The poison of sin gets swept away. The antidote to sin is to believe in Jesus' sufficient sacrifice in our place on the cross and repenting of our sins. Paul said in 1 Corinthians that we preach Christ crucified. Why do we preach that? Because he's the one that was lifted up. And he said that to some people that sounds so foolish. And it's a stumbling block to other people. But to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The power of God. In Moses' day, God's people were dying because they were bitten by venomous snakes. They could, they could physically see the effects of the poison. And as such, they called out to God in fear and trembling. And they were willing to do whatever God asked. Please spare me, God. Spare me, God. Simply for the chance to live physically, to keep living on this earth. Here's the reality that the people who do not believe in Jesus today, they don't realize that they have been bitten by the poison darkness of sin. And yet the evidence of the poison is clear, isn't it? Or is it just clear to me? We're all dying. Oh, it sounds so fatalistic, Pastor Bob. Don't talk. It's so negative. We are. We know that we don't live forever, right? We, we know we don't live forever. It's just a fact. The other thing is, nothing in life comes easy, it feels like, right? You've got to work for everything. We're toiling, and, 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 and sin is all around us, and there's complications, and there's, it's just struggles all around us because of sin. And, and we need to, the people around us who don't know who Jesus is, it doesn't make us better than anybody. It just makes us saved. It just makes us children of God. But people need to see, even as we all do, if we're children of God, that sin Sin kills. You know, you and I, if you're a Christian, I'm going to ask the brothers to come up with the communion. If we confess our sins daily before the Lord and receive His grace and forgiveness, we confess and we do that all the time. We do that even though we know that we are no longer condemned thanks to the blood of Jesus and that He died for us. Amen? We're not condemned. And now it's time for others to know that they can also no longer stand condemned if they believe in Jesus with just a simple look to the cross in faith. And it's time now, like now, like today, this moment, and, 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 and when you leave here this morning and when you go out tomorrow on, on you know, happy Monday, um, you go out and it's that time to declare and to lift up Jesus everywhere you go. Not in a year when you feel like it. Not like, well, I'll wait another three months and then the opportunity might go by and, and you miss it or whatever. But why wouldn't you tell people and lift up Jesus? Because he's coming soon. He's coming soon. And that's what communion is all about. I said all that to make this point and tie it all in, hopefully. is that that's what communion is all about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I know the ushers are passing out, but if you could give me your attention as well. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. Whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. 
And here's where the connection is. In Paul's words, he says, For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, I don't want to talk about his death. I don't want to talk about the negative stuff, his death. Listen, if there was no death, there's no resurrection. If there's no death, there's no life for you and me. If there's no death, there's no life for anyone else who's a sinner. But it's got to be a death. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim. Now, proclaim is a very important word as they're passing this out. Because it means, and it's, an, it's, a, it's a perfect translation there in the NIV. But that word in the Greek means a multitude of words. It means to proclaim, as it says. It means to teach. It means to show. It means to declare and to formally tell. So what does that mean? We're proclaiming. We're, we're telling a story here. We're saying that we believe that there was a time that just as, this, as the, the Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, the Son of Man was also lifted up. Jesus said himself that he would have to be. Why? So that anyone who believes in him would have, you can help me, eternal life. If there's no lifting up on the cross, Jesus' body and his shed blood, you got nothing to believe in if he didn't rise from the dead. What What are you believing in? It's futile, Paul said. But it's a proclamation. It's a declaration. Publicly speaking out, saying, we're lifting up Jesus right now again. I'm going to ask the team to come if they're here and to sing a song. And after they sing this, I want you to think of these words. We'll partake in communion. It'll be just a few more minutes. I know what, I see the time. I know it's a little later.